My name is Philip Lovejoy, and I'm the executive director of the Harvard Alumni Association, and it is my great pleasure to welcome you all back for your reunions and to welcome you into Sanders Theater for what promises to be a very interesting and robust conversation. This morning, our goal is to reconnect you briefly with the intellectual life on campus and showcase just a few of the extraordinary faculty in the arts and sciences. We hope to prov provide you with a glimpse of how this learning and research is impacting our students, our own communities, and beyond. It is my great honor this morning to introduce and welcome Michael Smith, Harvard University's Edgerly Family Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and our Master of Ceremony for this morning's program. <clears throat> I am particularly honored to welcome Mike as he nears the conclusion of his 11-year tenure as the FAS Dean. Mike, among his many good works, has established a shared faculty commitment to excellence in teaching and has cultivated and expanded undergraduate research and opportunities for active learning. Mike is leaving an important legacy of having recruited the most diverse group of world-class faculty at the top of their fields in the history of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. Given all this work, he's the perfect person to guide us on an hour-long intellectual tour of what's happening on campus today. On behalf of the alumni community, I want to thank Dean Smith for all that he has done in service to this institution. While this is a loss to the administration, it is a boon for our students, as Mike will return to the classroom. Thank you for all being here today, and please join me in welcoming Dean Michael Smith to the stage. Thank you, Philip, for that very kind introduction. And good morning to everyone. Did you have fun yesterday? Oh my goodness, what a beautiful day, huh? That was fantastic. I was glad to see that for President Faust's last commencement. Um, just an amazing, amazing set of speakers and programs. So welcome back to campus. I hope you're having a good time. I know you have a whole lot of different things set up for you. I hope this will be, as you heard Philip say a moment ago, a discussion. Our faculty speakers will come up and present some of the work that they've been doing and hopefully tie that into what our students are seeing in the classroom today. So there'll be a bit of a presentation, but we will have an open question and answer period. And I really do hope you, as you listen to the different speakers, you think about the kinds of questions that you might want to ask. I always enjoy these events because it feels like I'm back in the classroom myself. We have such interesting people doing so many important pieces of research right now that are having impact, not just with our students on campus, but also impact in the broader world. And as we heard in some of the speeches yesterday, that is extremely important for the times in which we live. So I'm not gonna spend too much time up here. We're here to hear from our faculty speakers. And let me begin by introducing our first speaker of the day. And that is Professor Lisa McGurr who is in our history department within the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. You have, uh, as you were walking in, handed a piece of paper with their, both of their bios on it, so I won't read through their uh, bios, but I will just mention a few things. First of all, uh, for those of you that have had a long associations, not just with Harvard, but also with Radcliffe, that Lisa was a Radcliffe Fellow back in 2013, and some of the work that we will hear about today uh, was, uh, improved and benefited upon because of that time spent at Radcliffe. Radcliffe is an unbelievable resource for us and for our faculty. Uh, she is a, interested in social and political history 
And I can't imagine a better time for us to revisit the importance of what has gone on in the past so that we can learn from that as we face the challenges that we face today. Uh, she'll talk probably a little bit about her current first or current book that she's working on, but I wanted to mention her first book, Suburban Warriors, The Origins of the New American Right, which was investigating social and regional histories around the grassroots conservative politics that took place post-World War II. Uh, fascinating read that tells you a lot about the current political situation in which we find ourselves today. So if you're looking for something to read on the beach this summer, I encourage you to pick that up too. With that introduction, please join me in welcoming Lisa McGurr. Good morning, welcome. Uh, I hope you're having a great week. Uh, and the topic I'm going to be talking to you about today is kind of apt. Uh, it's about alcohol, liquor, and uh, so imagine a lot of consumption of that going on uh, through the celebrations this week. Um, in any case, uh, I want to talk about prohibition. And let's see. Um, I want to start with a, this painting. This is a painting by a, an artist uh, by the name of Ben Sean. Some of you might be familiar with Ben Shahn's work. He's best known for his paintings and photographs of ordinary Americans during the Great Depression and the New Deal, kind of heroic portraits of muscular working class men and women. This is a less well-known painting by Ben Shahn, one of a series he did in 1933, nine paintings on prohibition. They were intended for a mural in Central Park, but the war on alcohol, alcohol had just come to an end. It was too controversial. The paintings were never uh, made in Central Park, and these uh, portraits, or the mural was never made. Uh, these portraits languish now in the basement of the Museum of the City of New York. I start with these because, with this painting, because I think it really evokes important aspects of prohibition that I want to emphasize today. One is it shows the linkage between the Prohibition era and the New Deal era of state building that followed that are often, those eras are often treated quite separately. But Prohibition, the Prohibition experience, contributed to state building and helped to, helped to lay the groundwork for the New Deal that followed. But more importantly, I emphasize and start with this painting because it emphasizes and shows aspects of the prohibition experience that have been somewhat neglected. We have, uh, you see the federal official closing down a warehouse, a supply of liquor, dumping out the barrels of wine, breaking the bottles in the background, and in the far background, the carceral, the kind of barbed wire fence, I think evoking the coercive and penal aspects of the prohibition experience in the prohibition years. Now, in contrast, if you think about our more popular narratives and popular culture, what is emphasized about those years are corruption, the great escapades of kind of romanticized, organized criminals. Uh, you just have to turn on your television or HBO or anywhere else. For years, prohibition has served as the fodder for Hollywood plots of both organized criminality, but also unending flows of bootleg liquors. Americans have an unending appetite, really, for stories of moonshine, bootleg 
for the kind of cultural rebellion that prohibition fostered, for the seeming oceans of supply. And when these kind of, this is, these are still shots from Ken Burns' documentary on prohibition, which is actually relatively good until you get to 1920, and then it seems like this chapter from 20 to 33, which the prohibition years themselves, he terms the nation of scoff laws, emphasizing again rebellion and the way the law was largely ignored, as if enforcement was more or less a dead letter. Now, these portraits sort of suggest that rather than obviously ushering in an era of clean living, prohibition sent the nation on down the road of a kind of 14-year-long bender. Um, it's not entirely inaccurate, obviously. Some of these uh, understandings are real. Their words continued oceans of supply, and I'll talk more about that. But I think this sort of rendering of prohibition has caused us to neglect the emphasis on the failures of this hugely ambitious law has caused us to neglect the much more consequential and permanent ways the Prohibition era changed the American state. Prohibition was a, a moment of, a neglected moment of state building wedged between the Progressive Era and the New Deal era that followed. It pushed the United States federal government in a direction of policing and surveillance Changes that did not, were not removed with rescission or repeal, but moved forward, lurched forward in new directions. It made the United States far more muscular. Remember, prior to prohibition, the federal government was known to most Americans outside of wartime through walks to their local post office. Maybe if they were extremely wealthy, they might have been touched by the income tax, but it's only in World War II that the income tax becomes widespread. So prohibition is a vast expansion of federal authority, gives it new muscle and visibility, and helps, again, as I said, to lay the groundwork for the New Deal. So I want to talk about enforcement. In terms of the, the other thing I just want to mention that in terms of that moment of state building, prohibition served to not only sort of build the American penal state and punitive state in the 20s, but it served as a launching pad, and I'll talk about this at the end, for the war on drugs. It was, in a way, one could argue, a dress rehearsal for the far longer, uh, far more lasting war on drugs. So in terms of enforcement, middle class and wealthy Americans did drink in relatively protected speakeasies, and prohibition did usher in new forms of leisure, including the fact that women, for the first time, were really drinking in these underground spaces where they had been barred from drinking in saloons. So it ushers in a new kind of adventurous sort of form of leisure for small groups of relatively well-to-do Americans. But for poor, more marginal violators, experience the brunt of the law. So prohibition, in contrast to our kind of popular narratives, was enforced by an increasingly intrusive federal state uh, as well as by all the states, which had their own enforcement codes. And it's the marginal men and women, immigrant working class producers, small scale, that did not have access to the same level of protection as the large organized crime rings that end up experiencing the brunt of the law. These men and women are arrested. Here you have in Chinatown another sort of incident arrest. And finally, in Richmond, Virginia, in this raid, a series of still tenders, those who are employed by the still owners are arrested, 
and they're African Americans. So it's those identified already in public discourse with criminality that tend to be the targets of enforcement. And then, not surprisingly, given this very real enforcement, prohibition, the United States experiences its first large spike in rates of incarceration. In the 1920s, the number of those in federal prisons triples, doubles again in the 1930s. Prohibition violators are the largest class of prisoners, and with the new increasing targeting of drug addicts, by 1930, drug and prohibition violators are the largest class of violators, making up 50% of federal prisoners. At the state level, in places like Virginia, the prison population doubles. In North Carolina, it triples. In Texas, prisons are so overcrowded that state officials refuse to take any more prisoners uh, to pressure the state to build more prisons. This spike of incarceration that takes place kind of tapers off in 1940 after the end of Prohibition. And of course, as we know, it sort of plateaus through the 40s and the 70s. And then once again, spirals, spikes up, right, from the 70s and 80s onward with what I call the second war on drugs, an escalation of an edifice that had been built during the Prohibition years. And that has led us to this crisis that we're in today of mass incarceration. As you know, the United States has one of the largest prison populations in the world. 50% of those federal prisoners are there for nonviolent drug violations and about 20% of state prisoners. So all of that enforcement, though, in the 1920s, of course, did not mean that the effort was successful, right? As we said, there were still oceans of supply, and those images of organized crime are accurate, right? This is a moment where illicit traffics flourish, and illicit traffics go hand in hand with organized, not just crime, but violence, right? There's sort of collateral violence of the prohibition years. This is an image from the St. Valentine's Massacre. These images are displayed across new tabloid newspapers. There's enormous attention to the problem of crime in the 1920s. Crime becomes a national obsession. There is, uh, many Americans are concerned with this, what's considered a crime wave. And first at the local and state level, there's a lot of crime commissions. But then at the national level, crime becomes identified as a national problem and the responsibility of the federal government. This is fundamentally new. Crime had been identified as a local and state problem prior to prohibition. With prohibition, crime control becomes a federal responsibility, something the federal government never recedes from, remains a backdrop, backdrop to local and state enforcement ever since. The federal government uses or leverages this problem of crime to wage a war against it. And it's actually Herbert Hoover, who's often thought of as an individualist, that leads the way to building the edifice of the federal penal state. First launching a national crime commission, a large-scale commission to grapple with the problem of crime, calling for a war on crime uh, after the St. Valentine's Massacre, establishing uh, not only a crime commission, but ratcheting up the Bureau of Prisons into the Federal Bureau of Prisons, beginning an expansion of the number of prisons, which continues into the New Deal. It's at this moment that criminal knowledge is centralized at the federal level. We get the birth of the Uniform Crime Reports, the National Index of Criminality ever since. It's at this moment that the FBI, Federal Bureau of Investigation, gains in stature 
in authority in 32 and 34, coming directly off of the prohibition experience. Until the 1920s, the FBI was minuscule, it was small, tiny. It's, and it's during the prohibition years that it begins to grow. The prohibition police themselves are much, much larger and greater than the FBI. And the FBI basically benefits off of the concerns over the problems of the Prohibition Bureau and corruption to build its own authority, legitimacy, and professionalize policing, the federal, federal policing forces. So the last thing I want to point out is the importance of prohibition in terms of launching the penal and punitive approach toward narcotic drugs more broadly. Often alcohol prohibition and drug prohibition are thought of as parallel, or maybe we can reflect on the ways in which the alcohol experience should teach us something about this other very different experience. But I want to point out that they're not just parallel, they're symbiotic. These were symbiotic campaigns. Prohibition, not only did it change legal doctrine, institutions, and federal agencies permanently, but it launched a war on drugs that has continued since 1933. So that penal and punitive reproach, approach toward addiction moved forward in new directions. So you have here uh, Harry Anslinger before you uh, on the one side and Richmond Hobson on the other. Harry Anslinger comes out of the Prohibition Bureau. He was a missionary for anti-alcohol crusader. Um, and he was elevated to the new position of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics in 1930. It's in the 1920s that Congress begins to adopt a far more prohibitionary approach toward narcotic drugs. The Harrison Tax Act had been established in 1914, the first drug, major drug control legislation, but the courts refused to go along with Congress's, or with federal officials' efforts to use that law to penalize drug addicts and those who provided drugs. In the 1920s, that changes. Why? Because if you prohibit one substance, namely alcohol, then those substances that are thought of as far more dangerous and physically damaging, public opinion hardened toward them, right? There's also a concern that the nation's tipplers would turn toward those substances. If they couldn't have alcohol, they might go for these other drugs. So this is a moment where drug addiction is increasingly criminalized. Drug addiction moves from a vision where it had been drug addicts had been thought of as more pathetic or to be pitied, possibly a public health issue, and now they are increasingly jailed. By the late 20s, Harry Anslinger, who came out of the Prohibition Bureau, he was vice commissioner of Prohibition, he had called for very serious penalties against what's called Volstead violators, prohibition violators, unsuccessfully by the late 20s, but he's far more successful in calling for a very punitive approach toward narcotic drugs, um, calling for judges to jail addicts and throw away the keys. By the 1930s, he, of course, ushers through Congress the Marijuana Tax Act, the federal legislation, anti-drug legislation, on the right, you have uh, your right, Richmond Hobson, who was considered one of the fathers of prohibition, was the lead lecturer, uh, the highest paid lecturer of the Anti-Saloon League, which was at the cutting edge of the campaign for alcohol prohibition. He was a congressman from Alabama, introduced the legislation to Congress in 1914. An incredibly important anti-alcohol crusader who declared that you know, alcohol was responsible for about half of all poverty, disease, uh, or crime, and used those same tropes in the 20s to campaign newly against narcotic drugs. 
He establishes in 1923 the International Narcotics Education Association, and in 1927, the World Narcotics Defense Association. He's one of a set of anti-moral, anti-drug crusaders that by the 1930s, through the auspices of the League of Nations, establish the world's sort of first major drug control and global drug control agreements and drug prohibition agreements. Interestingly enough, the United States is not part of the League of Nations but it took the cutting edge, it was at the forefront of the campaign to prohibit global supplies of narcotic drugs. Um, so these had huge effects, right? They, they laid, these campaign and crusaders laid the groundwork and edifice for this penal and punitive approach that has continued since. Now you have in the 1970s and 1980s coming off of the inner city turmoil and a new widespread use of drugs like marijuana and other forms of drugs by middle-class youth, a new concern over narcotics. And under Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, there's a massive escalation of what I call a second war on drugs, one that is far longer lasting than alcohol prohibition was and has been extremely, obviously, devastating in its consequences for violence abroad and at home for spiking numbers of our prison rates. Um, so this is, I point this out, I just want to, what I want to leave you with is that Americans changed their laws uh, in an effort to grapple with the problem of alcohol addiction. In fact, changed the nation's founding document to do so with the 18th Amendment. After the experience of prohibition, however, and its devastating consequences, that effort was ended. But the muscle of the penal state continued, as I said, and that approach toward other drugs continued as well, with, I think, far greater, more damaging consequences since the 1970s. So I hope that a revisit of alcohol prohibition, and particularly teasing out its symbiotic relationship to the war on drugs, can add fuel and strength to arguments of ending the war on drugs that has been no more successful than the war on alcohol. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. We'll take some questions, and I will admit I can't see with the lights, so... Yeah, it's a little hard to see. We'll start right down here. There's microphones coming around, so... Perfect, thank you. Great, thank you so much. Um, so how would you explain the different treatment of the opioid crisis and the crack epidemic? Because now we're seeing with the opioid crisis safe injection sites that allow you to bring your drug and safely inject the drug and keep you safe from um, right. any type of crim criminal consequences, and the version of that during the crack ep epidemic were crack houses and jail cells. So how do you reconcile those? Well, I think you can only reconcile those by looking at who is associated, the problem of addiction, and who is uh, being affected by these crises, right? Um, so obviously opioid addiction is a cross-class, cross-racial phenomenon, 
but middle-class white Americans in rural areas were largely identified as the victims of the opioid crisis in public discourse. And many Americans have now, basically, it's the opioid crisis, I think, an epidemic that has led to a possible rethinking of punitive and penal approaches because of who's being affected, right? Um, crack was very much associated with inner cities. There was a racial dynamic to the sentencing laws that were instituted in the 1980s because, of course, crack and cocaine are similar substances, but you had to have a hundred times more amount of cocaine to get an equal sentence that you would for a crack violation, right? So there was racial uh, disparities, racist disparities, in fact, in sentencing that has contributed to the fact that our prison populations tend to be more brown and black than white. Um, so I think that really does explain the difference between the treatment of those two phenomena. Down here in front, if we could bring the, thank you. Hi, so I thought it was a great presentation. Um, I wonder to the extent to which you were making a causal claim, though, because clearly the war on drugs follows from the war on prohibition, and from what you say, it, it's very similar to it. But how do we know that even without the war on prohibition, we might not have equally had a war on drugs that would have become punitive for independent reasons? We don't, and I'm not so sure historians are good at counterfactuals. I mean, I think this is, this is how it happened, right? And I think what's been neglected is the way that these fused, fueled into one another, right? If we had not had alcohol prohibition, the fact is we did. We had this moral campaign and this moral panic that drove, I think, um, a much larger, much greater expansion more rapidly because of the level of support for prohibition, for alcohol prohibition. Uh, the alcohol prohibition crusade was very, in some ways, different than, even though I'm pointing out the parallels, there are obviously really important differences. Alcohol was far more widespread in its use. The campaign to eradicate it was more controversial from the beginning. Drug addiction, one can maintain a wider consensus around. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not saying that there would not have been a war on drugs. I'm saying this is how we got to this position of penality and punitive approach uh, was definitely through the war on alcohol. So take one back there. Yes. It's still not on. Can, I can use it. It's, yeah, I can't hear. I just missed the one word. To talk about the themes, did you say, or the factors contributing to prohibition's end? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, what brought, I think, prohibition to an end, what really ca caused its rapid demise, was the economic crisis of the Great Depression. And in some ways, you can see some parallels with that there is, I think, a consensus around the Republican and Democratic Party that we're spending too much money incarcerating our citizens. 
So in that sense, I think the economic issue, you can, you can draw parallels between. But obviously, the Great Depression was a huge, massive economic crisis. So re-legalize re liquor, you re-legalize a whole industry. right? You can tax that industry. You can bring in revenue. You can solve a problem of unemployment without spending money. right? Um, those are the factors, I think, that contributed to the end of alcohol prohibition. Um, and you know, what came in its place were regulatory forms. That commodity that was considered too dangerous to legalize was then highly regulated, right, in its wake. And it's a question of what will come. Now, with marijuana, obviously, states are legalizing, but it's the federal government's positioning, right? It's the fact that marijuana, there still is the Marijuana Tax Act, which makes it illegal at the federal level coming out of this 1937 law. Um, and that makes it sort of harder to decriminalize uh, marijuana across the board. Um, so I'm not sure, basically. There are certain parallels, um, but there are also important differences. So we have a question down here. Uh, thank you for the wonderful talk, Professor McGirt. I wonder about um, the impact of the profit motive. You spoke about the boom in population and prisons after prohibition. And uh, was there a privatization of prisons back then, or is that something that we're just seeing recently? And you know that influence co-opting our political structures in order to sort of continue to feed itself. Well, if you go back to the late 19th and early 20th century, prisons were largely under the convict lease system. Prisons were leased out to private entities and corporations, right? Particularly African Americans in the South. So prisons were, in some ways, privatized. One could say. That shifted and changed. Uh, there's more in, in the 20s. Prisons are increasingly, convicts are still being used, but by the state, for example, by road building. In Virginia, you see prohibition era violators sentenced to the road, called the roads, right? Sort of building the state's roads. Um, so you don't see in the prohibition years the level of privatization that you have more recently with the, build, with the CCC, uh, the, the large corporation uh, that is building private prisons, there's still, even today, a very small portion of the nation's prisons are privatized, um, but it's a, it's a question and issue for a lot of folks about what that actually means. Um, so I'm not sure, is that, did that answer your question? Okay. Great. So I have time for one more right here in the middle. Just don't make it too long, please. First of all, obviously, thank you for the wonderful presentation. My question has to do with what's going on in Europe, say, like in Portugal and a couple yeah. other countries. Um, could that type of thing work here? Mm. I'm just wondering your thoughts on how Europe has done some of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, what's really interesting, there's a lot of different models, right? I mean, Portugal has completely de decriminalized all drugs. Um, there are other models in Germany, for example, where drugs are on the books, are criminalized, but there is no enforcement. So judges choose not to incarcerate. So there's about 9,000 folks in Germany that are in jail for drug violations. So there are many, many different approaches. I think the question of what can work here has to work on a, on a, in, in terms of international agreements, because the way the United States uh, basically, it's, it's, it uses this sort of UN agreements um, as, as a prohibitionary model and its own approach toward, for example, trying to eradicate supplies in places like Latin America. I think reforming, focusing on harm reduction is the way to go, and that's what the UN calls for. 
Um, but I think basically ending the sentencing, treating addiction as criminal rather than treating it as a public health problem is domestically the way we need to go. Great. Thank well, Please thank you. Thank you. Terrific. Up next is Fiery Cushman, who is an assistant professor of psychology with us here. Uh, and probably for this weekend, even more importantly, a member of the class of 2003 and here for his 15th reunion. So we're glad to have you with us this afternoon. Uh, as you can probably see from his title, we're going to continue on with questions of morality and enforcement issues. Uh, his research is interested in the astonishing complexity of moral judgment that each of us carries with us, uh, investigates how people learn and make decisions in social contexts. Uh, he will talk a little bit about uh, questions, for example, why do we sometimes punish when an accident occurs and how do we look at the different punishments around different kinds of accidents. And, Again, looking through uh, some of his material in preparation for today. If you're a parent like I am, I'm certainly interested and hopefully he will give us or answers in the future to questions about the human capacity to explain, predict, and evaluate others, in particular our children's behaviors at some times. So with that, I'll welcome Fiery up to the stage. So, th you know, this is my reunion year, uh, as Dean Smith mentioned. Um, and so for that reason, I've been thinking back. Um, so because this is a uh, reunion year for me, I've been thinking back um, and wanted to talk not just about the research that I'm doing now, but its origins in my undergraduate and graduate education. I've been thinking back about those transformative moments that occurred when I was a student here, sometimes in classrooms, other times in, in dining halls with friends and um, meeting my wife, for instance, uh, as an undergraduate here at Harvard. So I'll talk about one in particular. This is when um, I, was, uh, I was a graduate student and I was trying to understand human morality from a psychological perspective. I'm not a philosopher. I'm not trying to tell people what's right or wrong. I'm trying to understand why don't we harm each other? Why don't we act unfairly? What are the circumstances in which that reverses and in which we might harm each other or we might act unfairly? And I read this book that argued that one of the best examples of our psychology preventing us from doing harm to each other is war. And that was a kind of a transformative moment, thinking that war would exemplify our aversion to harm. This was a book called On Killing by a lieutenant colonel and a former army ranger. And he, as a, a member of the, of the US military, was grappling with the problem, how can we get soldiers to kill more? Because by and large, when you look especially at frontline GIs, they're incredibly resistant to doing any harm. Here's the kind of data that he was working with. So in the Battle of Gettysburg, there were 40 to 50,000 casualties, and 14 of uh, the individuals killed at Gettysburg helped to give this very room its name, Memorial Hall. There were 27,500 muskets that were collected on the battlefield. Most of these are muzzle-loading muskets. 
and they take some time to load. But once you've got them loaded, there's a wall of enemies who are shooting at you. You would be highly motivated to aim your gun and fire back at them. And so you can calculate from training data how many of the muskets that were recovered on the battlefield, presumably dropped by one of the casualties, a soldier who was killed or wounded, how many of those muskets should be empty and how many should be full? And if people are doing what they've been trained to do, and if the battlefield data matches training data, almost all of them should be empty, right? Because again, as soon as you have that musket loaded, you should be using it to shoot another person. But what you find is that actually very few of the muskets are empty. About maybe 30% of the muskets are loaded with one cartridge. About 25% of the muskets are loaded with two cartridges one right on top of the other. Now, you can still use that weapon to shoot, but it's not very effective. You're making it a less effective weapon. About 20% of the muskets are loaded with three or more cartridges. One of the muskets that they found is loaded with over 20 cartridges, one on top of the other. So what's happening? Soldiers aren't loading their guns and shooting as quickly as they can at the people who are shooting at them. They're loading their guns, and they're pretending to shoot. And then they're loading their guns, and they're pretending to shoot again. And they keep doing that until somebody shoots them. And that's why war is one of the best examples of our aversion to doing harm to each other. So as a graduate student, when I encountered this, you know, it's an incredibly evocative anecdote. And there's a little bit of data to it. There's a lot of disagreement in the army about how exactly we should interpret that data. The army's known about this fact for a long time, but people disagree about whether it really means that we have this deep-seated aversion to doing harm. And so I wanted to bring this phenomenon into the lab, but there's some obvious obstacles in terms of bringing this phenomenon into the lab. So we did. We recruited a whole bunch of Harvard undergraduates, <laughs> and we gave them uh, a replica handgun. This was a weighty metal. This felt like a gun in your hand. But we showed them that it was disabled. We showed them, look, you know, it can't harm anybody. And then we said, shoot me in the face. Now, this is, I know every, some of you are going to be thinking about the Milgram experiment. Notice the way that this is not the Milgram experiment. Nobody thinks they're doing any harm. We just showed them that this is a fake gun. I don't think that they believed that it might have harmed us. We were giving them a gun and asking them to shoot us in the face. Presumably, we were confident that that gun was not loaded, <laughs> right? And also, we really we, we emphasize to people, if, if you don't feel comfortable doing this, you don't have to do it. But most of the people did it. They just did it with extreme reluctance. And one of the ways that we quantified that was by measuring a suite of different cardiac measures. We, were, we had hooked them up to an EKG. Uh, we were taking their blood pressure. We could use this suite of cardiac measures essentially to measure cold feet. The technical term for this is total peripheral resistance. It means all the blood vessels located throughout your body are getting smaller. When you're really nervous about doing something, when you have that experience of cold feet, this is why. You literally do have cold feet. The blood vessels are getting smaller, and there's less blood in your periphery. So we're taking that measure, and what we find is when you ask somebody to shoot a fake gun, you get this big spike in total peripheral resistance, indicating that they're very uncomfortable. And if you looked at their faces, if you'd been in the room with me, or uh, to be honest, it was more often my graduate students who were sitting in the chair getting shot in the face. <laughs> you could really get this sense that people didn't want to do this. Now, why? I mean, they know that they're not causing any harm. If we just ask them to watch as I shoot my graduate student, 
you get a little bit of an increase, but not a very big increase. And so we were struggling to think, what, what, as psychologists, what do we know about human psychology that could account for this sort of overgeneralization? Most of the time, when you're holding a gun in your hand, you do not want to point it at another person and pull the trigger. Most of the time, that's terrible. And then we seem to overgeneralize that in circumstances where the rule that usually applies doesn't apply. One example is when you know the gun is empty and you're part of a weird experiment. Another example, potentially is when you're on the battlefield and the only way to save your life is to use that weapon to kill another person. But there's something about morality that gives us such a strong sense that we can't pull the trigger that we have trouble overriding it. And the place that we turned was to the literature on habit learning. So let's take a big step away from morality. This is the lock to my office door. When I moved back to Harvard uh, now four years ago, uh, this was the lock on my office door. And the first few times that I went home, I had to learn how to use the lock. And I was thinking carefully about what I was doing. I was thinking, I want my computer to be safe. I'll turn this thing. The door will be locked. I'll go home. I'll come back the next morning and open it. That's the way that we, uh, that we often behave. Often we perform an action because we desire its result. We lock the door because we want the door to be locked. But now it's been four years. I've locked that door on the way out every single night for four years. And so I've formed a habit. And one way to think about that is that the value that I'm thinking about is no longer placed on the result. I'm not thinking, oh, I want to keep my computer safe. I'll lock the door. Rather, the action of just flipping that switch on my way out the door has become intrinsically valuable itself. How do I know that that's true? Here's a couple reasons. First, it could be the middle of the night, and I'm just walking down the hall to get a drink of water 20 feet from the door to my office, and there's nobody else around, but I'll still habitually lock the door behind me. I'm overgeneralizing a rule that typically applies to a circumstance where it's unnecessary. And what that shows you is that I've started to place intrinsic value on performing the action relatively thoughtlessly. Or there could be a circumstance where not only am I going down the hall to get a drink of water, but I don't have my keys in my pocket. And I end up locking myself out of my office. Here, if I had been thinking about the result of my behavior, I would precisely not have locked the door. And so again, that instructs us that the value has shifted backwards. And we started to think that maybe something like this is going on with the gun, that through potentially direct personal experience with a gun, or potentially uh, a lifetime of observing other people with guns, learning about them. We're no longer thinking that the only thing wrong with pulling the trigger to a gun is that it makes a person die. We're starting to feel as if there's something intrinsically about the action that we don't want to do. Here's maybe a more familiar example. When I go to Europe, I tip the waitstaff 20%. Now, I know that that is not the local norm. And I don't do this because I have some tremendous love of European waitstaff. It's never occurred to me sitting at home in the United States to just write a check to a European waiter and send it to them because I feel good when they have money. I'm doing this because I'm overgeneralizing something that typically makes sense, even in a context where it doesn't. Okay? So we think also about tipping potentially as a kind of a moral habit. So now we want to test these ideas. Well, one really simple test that we can perform. We, we know about habits that they're very tied to the sensory motor properties of the world. That is, the things you see, the things you feel, invoke habits. Which means that if Harvard were to rewire my door so that I locked it with an iPhone, 
I would no longer habitually lock the door on the way out. I'd have to start to think hard again until I had formed a habit of every time I was on my way out performing this new sensory motor routine, a new visual image in front of me, a new thing that I'm touching. So we can do this with the gun. We ran an experiment where half the participants have to pull the trigger of the gun the ordinary way, but half of them just have to pull a six-inch rope tied around the trigger. And when you put that six-inch rope around the trigger, the total peripheral resistance response gets cut in half. So that really indicates that part of the aversion that we have to doing harm to each other isn't that we're thinking about the consequences of our action. It's just the feeling of that cold, heavy metal in your hand. It's the image of a gun in front of you. And just changing those sensory motor properties in small ways has important implications for our sense of morality. Which is, I think, a really important lesson in an era when the particular ways in which we enact harm each other are, are changing. In some ways, making us much, much, much more distant from each other when we enact harm. In peculiar ways, actually making us much closer to somebody who we harm. And this is not just an issue for the military. All of us have, every, every one of you has a device in your pocket that makes you in some ways much closer to other people and in other ways much more distant from other people. It's interesting to think about its implications for the kind of moral habits that shape our behavior. So that's a hypothesis that I developed in graduate school. I want to tell you about some of the more recent research that we're doing to develop this hypothesis a little bit more concretely. One of the reasons it's exciting to study habits is because it turns out that computer scientists, neuroscientists, and psychologists have converged on a common mathematical language to build habits. And if you've heard recently about any of these big breakthroughs in artificial intelligence where machines can now play chess, or can play Go beyond the level of any human expert. It's these basic equations that learn habits that are at the heart of those algorithms. And we can, just to give you a sense for what these equations are doing, in essence, they, they input sensory experience, a history of experience in the world, and then they influence our behavior by constructing a representation of the actions that are valuable to perform. Now, it turns out the reason neuroscientists are interested in this is because you can take those equations and you can ask, as you put a human in a brain scanner and you give them a decision-making task, you know, a game like chess or go, can you find evidence that there are neurons in the brain that are implementing this equation? And the answer is yes. Here, for instance, in the ventral striatum, now dozens, if not hundreds of studies have shown that something like this equation is implemented in order to build habits. So I'm going to tell you about an experiment that uh, we've been working on where we try to replicate that phenomenon the way it's typically demonstrated, just winning and losing money for yourself, and then ask whether there's a similar equation that's being implemented to make moral decisions. So here's the way we replicate the typical research. It's so simple. We give you a couple buttons. They have funny shapes, you know, little fractals. And one of them will consistently earn you $5, and the other will lose you $5. Not surprisingly, people choose to click on the one that earns you money. And the more they do that, the more it just becomes a habit. Every time this comes on the screen, that's the button they click on. OK, so we have a bunch of Harvard undergraduates do that, earning money for themselves. 
but then on other trials, we give them a separate set of fractions that give lunch to orphans. Uh, fractals, sorry, that give lunch to orphans. So we teamed up with an orphanage in the developing world where every dollar that we send them buys five lunches for children in need. And we were actually sending the money to that orphanage based on the choices that participants made in the lab. And we told them this. We showed them pictures uh, of some of uh, the, the types of orphans uh, that lived in that orphanage. So sometimes they're earning money for themselves, other times they're earning money for the orphans, and we don't put those in competition. You never have to choose between yourself and an orphan. It's just sometimes they're making self-choices, and other times they're making orphan choices. Okay, so this is the basic structure of the task. And then what we can do is look in the brain. So first, for the self-condition, when you're forming the habit of earning money for yourself, we get that very same brain region I was just talking about, ventral striatum replicating many, many, many past studies. And then look where the habits are formed with the very same system of equations when you're earning lunches for somebody else, something arguably moving in the direction of a moral decision. So of all the places in the brain that that equation could be implemented, it was remarkable to us that it was right next door to where you're making the decisions for yourself, potentially not identical, but we think suggestive that, the, that similar underlying neural circuits and similar underlying computational mechanisms are responsible for forming the ordinary mundane habits like locking the door on your way out of the office and the more extraordinary and important habits like being averse to harming another person or having the habit of, of giving a good tip for good service. So this is an exciting area of research for us because there's a whole lot of pieces that are coming together. We have a kind of general way of describing this idea of moral habits, and then we can start to link this together with psychological models of habit learning, with computational models of habit learning, and with neuroscientific models of habit learning. And that makes this one of the rare examples in my own research where I actually teach this stuff to undergraduates because it's, it's relatively uncommon that you get that trifecta of a computational model, a psychological model, and a neural model converging. But my assumption is that the undergraduates that I, that I teach this work to, they're probably within five or 10 or 15 years, they're not gonna remember very much about the neuroanatomy of the ventral striatum or about the mathematical form of, of temporal difference reinforcement learning. There's something much more abstract that I'm trying to teach them when I present them with this type of information. And that is that there's value in trying to understand the hidden logic of really ordinary things. That's one of the frustrations of teaching psychology that everybody has a brain, and so they're, they've got a pretty good working model of how it works. And so oftentimes, as a psychologist, you say, you know, I've been studying morality, and what I've learned is people don't like to shoot each other. And everyone says, I knew that. Of course I knew that. I have a brain. I know what it would feel like to try to shoot a person. But I want to argue to you that there's value in trying to understand the hidden logic of even these familiar things. Here's an example from cognitive psychology. So if you went to an introductory lecture in vision, how, do, how, do, how does your eyes and your mind work together to have a visual experience of the world? You might get a whole lecture on why you perceive this as a triangle. And the professor would go through great lengths to make, you, to, to make this seem like a problem. You know, well, technically, there's not actually a triangle here. It's just a collection of pixels in close proximity. And you would learn a bunch of differential calculus that would allow you to detect the change in luminance between the dark areas and the light areas. And you would learn something about our capacity to count sides and our concepts of triangles as having three sides. 
And you might think that that lecture was academic in the kind of pejorative sense. Like the professor was just trying to construct a problem where basically there was none. It's a triangle, we can all see it. It has three sides, I can count them. But the principles that the professor would be teaching you could generalize to something that you almost never encounter in your ordinary experience. You see two triangles here, but there are no triangles here whatsoever. The hidden logic of the perfectly ordinary case helps us to start to understand the more unusual case. And that same hidden logic can make you understand why you don't perceive this as just a collection of shapes, but rather the very image of happiness and joy. And that's a lesson, I mean, that's, that, that's the basic form that psychological research takes. We try to take our ordinary experience of the world and discover its hidden logic. But it's actually a lesson that goes well beyond psychology. In some sense, this is the whole, this is the whole program of critical thinking that we teach in undergraduate education. The idea that from moment to moment, you don't just engage with the ordinary world in familiar ways, but you try to scratch beneath the surface. You try to understand the hidden logic of familiar things, hoping that it'll give you the ability to understand and maybe even to create something of extraordinary beauty. So, thanks very much. Thank you, Tyler. Take some questions, and hopefully they can drop the light again. Let's see. So the, the microphone, if we could bring them to the front right here. We have a couple of questions right in front. Thank you. Was that equation a real one? Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, that, that it, equation is a real, it's a real equation. It's called Q-learning. Okay. And I'm proud to say that I think that mine may be the first undergraduate social psychology class in which every student learns to implement that equation. Is there some kind of recursive aspect to it? Because Q turns up twice in its own equation. Yes, uh, thank you. So I should say the, the, the equation uh, would be better understood as an update rule rather than an equality. Uh, so if you were to, instead of uh, representing it with an equal sign, have a, I guess it would be a leftward pointing arrow, we're updating the new Q value with uh, information about the old Q value combined with some new experience. So I think a lot of us have seen uh, self-driving cars uh, in the news and accidents, and uh, there are going to be moral problems that those systems will, will have to solve. Maybe talk a little bit about how that m might inform something like the trolley problem and you know, having a system figure out what to do in those scenarios. Yeah, so uh, in case anyone didn't hear it, the basic question is how are we going to apply moral psychology to autonomous systems? Um, and the example that you brought up was self-driving cars. I'll, let me give you a much more creepy example. Um, I guess it's not up here anymore, but on my acknowledgement slide, some of my funding comes from uh, the Office of Naval Research. And the Office of Naval Research is interested in computational models of human morality that could eventually be programmed into the robot army. <laughs> and on the one hand, you can say that's creepy. <laughs> And on the other hand, you can say, if there's gonna be a robot army, let them make better choices. Um, but one of, the, one of the real challenges here, and um, 
And I, and I want to give the Navy some credit for having the foresight to see that there's a there's, you, can, you could think about this as an opportunity or a problem, but it's in our future. In our future are increasingly intelligent autonomous systems. They're going to be driving us soon, and sooner or later, whether it's our army or somebody else's, people are going to be trying to weaponize them. Um, now, would you wish them to have human morality or a better one? And if it were a better one, whose? And who would decide? And that's, so I'm, a, I'm just, shucks, I'm just a scientist. I don't, <laughs> it, it's somebody, it's, it's, it's above my pay grade, as Obama would say, to, um, to try to work out the philosophy of which morals should we enter into the robot. And so, both for autonomous vehicles and also for military applications, we think about just trying to understand human morality as well as we can, such that some form of it, restricted, simplified, could be implement, implemented in an autonomous system. But I do think that, that my colleagues in the philosophy department in public policy programs, um, in, uh, in a whole variety of different ac academic disciplines, law, are gonna have to think very seriously about once we have the power to create new moral systems in new intelligent autonomous lives, systems, I don't know if you think of it as a life, life. What should it be? Ours or something else? I don't know. So over here. That was an awesome talk. Um, you know, I guess the question that I have from an, entrepreneur, an entrepreneurial perspective, and if you look at sort of the technologies that are being developed these days, they're incredibly habit-forming. Um, but not necessarily uh, yielding kind of improved, people have this sense that they're not necessarily improving their long-term uh, sort of well-being. Yes. Um, I suppose, could you comment on how you perceive that and if there are ways that, you know, entrepreneurs could think about sort of building different types of uh, business models or, or products that could make for that, to, that result to that's be a, true? That's a really wonderful and insightful question. So. Um, First of all, let me distill the, the essence of this problem. So, as I mentioned, habits are fundamentally inaccurate. And there's a reason that we use them anyway, it's because they're very efficient. So they're inaccurate because you'll sometimes lock yourself out of their, your office, but they're efficient because you don't have to think very hard about what you're doing, you're just on autopilot. You can be thinking about the next day's lecture and the door gets locked the right way 99% of the time, you just pay the cost the 1% of the time that you're locked out of your office. So habits are one strategy for making decisions that occupy a certain point on an efficiency versus accuracy spectrum. Um, you know, as humans, one of the really nice, you know, a lot of non-human animals don't have a lot of choice about the habits that they form. As humans, we have choice, we have agency. We can decide what types of habits we want to form. And interestingly, some of the very earliest recorded moral theories advocate that we should do just this. Like Aristotle's basic approach to morality is to say, you know, most of our moral decisions and most of our moral behavior will be guided by habits. So it's our responsibility in more considered reflective moments to make sure that we form the habits that will by and large get us to choose the best behaviors in the future when on autopilot. And I would argue that there's a kind of important lesson there for the entrepreneur, that is, um, when you design a tool or a product for a person to use, 
Uh, it would be wonderful if they could use it efficiently by forming habits, but it would also be wonderful if the habits that it encourages them to form are the ones that in a reflective moment they would have chosen for themselves rather than the ones that satisfy some other end, whether that's their own impulsive desires or the profit motive uh, of the company. So, right in the back, or where are you going? Sorry. I read an article recently about how difficult it seems to be to get people to change their minds. Um, and I know that politics and morals cross over. I just wondered if you did any research on why that is, or if your research touches on the, the difficulty that people are finding when they're trying to change people's minds about moral issues. Um, I am not. Wait, you're not, you're not going to say that was a wonderful and insightful question? <laughs> No, it, I think it was so self-evidently wonderful and insightful <laughs> that it seemed unnecessary to say it out loud. And the reason that I know that it is is because it puts its finger on the program of research of a senior colleague of mine. Um, but Josh Green, uh, who's one of the real pioneers of the field of moral psychology and whose book Moral Tribes, uh, I'm because uh, Josh isn't here, I can embarrass him. I'm sure it's available in the coop and you could do yourself a favor um, by browsing it. Um, has now turned his attention to this exact problem and he's been running some experiments uh, that put people across political divides in conversation with each other and he tries to structure those conversations to force them to rely on each other. Turns out that people who are, for instance, liberals and conservatives in America, they disagree on political issues. They also have different knowledge bases about totally non-political things, just because they have different hobbies. And so he puts them in trivia games where they need to trade information. Well, I don't know very much about, you know, you could, I, I won't name the stereotypes, but I don't know very much about this, but you might know that, and I don't know much about this, but you might know that. And once people are in that habit of, and, and it really is, he's not modeling it in terms of the computational mechanisms of habit learning, but you can think about it a similar way. You're in the habit of relying on this person with complementary knowledge. Then he starts asking you questions that are a little bit closer to the political domain and ratcheting that up and up and up. This is early, uh, you know, early days in this research program, but certainly the hope is that um, we'll be able to resolve, he will be able to resolve uh, and bridge these kinds of political divides. So thanks very much. Thanks to everyone. This has been a lot of fun. So let me thank both of our faculty guests for the wonderful presentations. I hope we have given you something to uh, talk about through some of the next couple of days. And I'd also like to, before I end here, make sure to thank everyone in this room and your classmates who are here for your reunions on the incredible support that you've given to the college, to the graduate school, to the rest of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and Harvard broadly. You can see one of the reasons why we are excited by um, what we're able to accomplish on this campus because of the, fac the incredible faculty that we have to go along with the unbelievably talented students and bring them together 
to solve some of what we think of as some of the hardest problems facing Satya today. So I hope you enjoy the rest of your time here on campus. There are HAA officials up here in the front of the room. If you have any questions about where you're supposed to be next or what you're supposed to be doing, I actually have no idea. Um, <laughs> and enjoy yourselves. Thank you.